Elizabeth was once a garden place with all her glories common, and men did live a holy race and worship Jesus face to face in Adam on thy amen. Hello, and welcome to Mormon Matters. Usurping John DeLynn's regular spot as host, I'm Jay Nelson Seawright. With us tonight are regular panelists, David King Landreth, John Hamer, and Rosalind Welch. Tonight we're going to be talking about the issue of same-sex marriage, a, a topic that sparks long-winded and heated debates in the, on the Mormon internet, and frankly, wherever Mormons come together to talk about politics and religion, those two beautiful themes. Uh, today's discussion is going to focus around two articles that talked about same-sex marriage in the most recent issue of Dialogue, The Case Against Same-Sex Marriage by Randolph G. Muellstein, and A Case for Same-Sex Marriage, Reply to Randolph Muellstein by H. Wayne Shaw. And we're going, to, we're going to use those articles as a springboard, but hopefully we're going to be able to explore the perspectives and positions of all three of our uh, panelists today. And I want to open up with theme that's long been one of the particularly heated points of discussion in religious debate over same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction, and homosexuality, which is the question of where it all comes from. Does this come from God, from our genes, from individual choice, from the devil, from our culture, or what? And most importantly, does it matter? So I'd like to open that up, and um, well, I don't know who would like to start out answering that. Why don't we uh, have Dave, Dave take a take a stab? Okay. What do you think? Where does where does homosexuality come from, and does it matter where it comes from? Um, I'm not I'm not so sure that it actually does matter. There's been a traditional argument over whether it's uh, something that people choose or whether it's something they're born with, and I see that as kind of uh, a, a political argument because women have always been discriminated against for how they're born, so. They want to argue that there's actually no biological difference between women and men aside from accidental ones. And then homosexuals have always been discriminated against for what's perceived as a choice, so they rush to the biological solution and they say, we were born this way. And I think um, it's probably just not that simple. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's not a choice in almost every case, um, but it's probably some mixture between a propensity and nurturing, but it's... I most likely clearly outside of the person's control, um, who finds himself, uh, you know, feeling a uh, draw toward people of the same sex as opposed to people of the opposite sex. So I, um, but again, I'm not sure that that matters. That's, that's my take mm -hmm. on it is, is um, I see um, there's an obvious political alignment between the way that gays have been distributed, discriminated against in the past and the position that they want to adopt um, to define their sexual orientation. Well, let me push you on that just a tiny bit. I mean, from a Mormon perspective, we would want to say that um, it matters a great deal whether this is a question of individual agency or something that, that isn't agency, something that, that someone you know, is, is, is thrust upon them rather than chosen. Do you, do you think that's just not not important one way or the other? Um, well, I think I, I approach agency from a different framework than than uh, many people. I see agency as basically a framework in which you give people credit or blame for something. Um, so I, I, I also think far too much is made of agency. I mean, like uh, we could say the mailman is a free agent, so he is going to decide whether or not he's going to deliver my mail. 
right? I actually rely on the fact that he doesn't exercise that free agency and that he just delivers the mail. And in life, we interact with people in such a way that presupposes that they're not going to exercise their free agency in certain issues and just kind of uh, will, you know, willlessly go along and do what they're supposed to. So, um, you know, I mean, if we're going to look at agency in terms of whether it's, uh, you know, in terms of it being a framework to give people credit or blame for things that they've done, I'm not sure that it, it fits comfortably into this question of whether you feel same-sex attraction or mixed-sex attraction. So, Rosalind, I'd like to bring you in on this. What, what do you think? Um, where does homosexuality come from and or does it matter? Well, just following on what Dave said, um, I think that if you're, if you're talking about um, same-sex attraction, homosexuality, from a purely moral perspective, um, it, that question has mattered. I think the, the assumption has been that if people are, individuals are born with a homosexual inclination, whether that is genetic in nature or has some other biological cause or even some um, cultural cause but that is beyond the scope of conscious choice, then it would be unjust to attach any moral opprobrium or moral blame uh, to a gay individual, whereas if instead it were a matter of choice, um, then indeed it would be appropriate to attach some sort of um, moral blame, some sort of sin uh, to homosexuals. Now, I have I a question for you, Rosalind. Okay. If, I, if I can interrupt real quick. Then if, say we have two people and one of them does have a um, biological or some kind of cultural predisposition towards same-sex attraction and another person does not and then they both um, commit uh, homosexual acts is the, uh, the act by the person who does not have the predisposition, is that somehow a worse sin? I think a lot of that matter whether uh, whether you, you know how, what you believe the nature of sin is is it, um, is, is somebody commit sin uh, even in ignorance um, or is sin only something that can be committed with full knowledge of uh, and full control over one's choices and actions? This is kind of a theological debate. I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is, and I don't know that the scriptures point us one way or the other. Um, I think in the in the case of of same sex marriage, the question about nature versus nurture is somewhat different than from the purely kind of moral perspective. I think that the point that Muelstein is making is that if homosexual orientation is um, at least somewhat um, susceptible to or at least partly a result of some cultural causes, um, then we want to take care in the kinds of institutions and kind of cultural and sexual mores that we put in place in order to um, diminish, the, uh, diminish the cultural component of, um, of homosexual orientation and and thus, you know, as he says, um, end up with, with fewer with fewer people adopting a homosexual lifestyle. Now, um, that is significantly different from saying that there will be fewer gays or, or you know, fewer, fewer lesbians or fewer people that experience same-sex attraction. Um, and I think that Xiao kind of um, willfully misinterprets what, what Milstein is getting at there. Um, but, but I think that when we're talking about gay marriage, um, it, it does matter to a certain extent um, to what extent nurture is involved in um, homosexual orientation 
for, for that reason. My own, my own personal view is that I, I really don't know. Um, arguing by analogy to other human behaviors that have genetic components, it is very probably, as Dave suggested, um, has some basis in biology, again, whether that be genetic or hormonal or, or some other basis that then unfolds in a particular environment, including a cultural environment. So it's a complex interaction of the two. Um, this is a this is a um, a question that can bring up lots of inconsistencies, and depending on what side of the debate one is on, uh, if we're talking about, for example, um, intelligence and race, then of course, you know, uh, many people will rush to you know claim that of course there is no genetic component to intelligence, you know, and, and, and that it's all nurture. Uh, when we're talking about, for example, gender differences, again, people will sort of get on different sides of this nature versus nurture fence depending on what the political stakes are. Um, in the end, I think that when we read things like, you know, homosexuality is 50% genetic and 50% cultural, um, I, I think that... Uh, a much greater degree of specificity is being claimed than can actually be supported by the data at this point. I think that we actually don't know um, a lot, very much about that. The best we can do is just argue by analogy to other human behaviors um, the best that we can. So I want to bring in John a little bit here. What do you say? Nature, nurture, or it doesn't matter? Well, I think that, I mean, for one thing, we're talking, Rosalind is framing it as human behaviors, and I think that we're, i, I we're talking about human qualities, not necessarily behaviors, because a behavior, a person doesn't have to have same-sex orientation at all to uh, to have some uh, homosexual relationship. Right, or, like uh, sex Craig, sex. So right? It, so it's not a, says he's not a, homosexual, but... Right, sure. So, yeah. I mean, this happens all the time whenever there's, uh, you know, only one gender environment. So in... In, in prison or anything like that, there's all, you know prisoners are not are not gay, you know they they just don't have any women to have sex with. But um, I think that we, the the whole question of nature versus nurture on this issue, just like all the other issues, I think for just about everything, has gone through. Uh, we we kind of swing back and forth as a society as we kind of look at these things, and I think that I don't know what it was 20, 30 years ago, people were much bigger into nurture and everything was going to be, uh, everything uh, mattered more about uh, what what you did as a child and what kind of um, what kind of memories you were repressing or all kinds of things like that or how you were tr treated as a kid, you know, and that, and that had a complete impact on everything that you did and I think now it's swung back the other way and people, you know, more study after study, they're finding, you know, uh, that uh, in things are inborn that you can determine very, you know, what's going to happen based on, you know, at, at age two, regardless of, you know, what of uh, the nurturing. So, I mean, I think that obviously they both have components, but I, I come down in this issue, I think that it is, uh, it's almost entirely uh, whether or not you are, you have the quality of same-sex attraction is determined by the time you're born. Now, there, there are people who say, well, there's this may be something that uh, you have a, uh, there's a quality, uh, there's a spectrum of what might happen, and it depends on what happens in vitro as opposed to if it's an actual gay gene. But anyway, either way, I do think that it's uh, that the quality of same-sex attraction is something that we can't say it's 50-50 nature nurture, but rather we're probably going to eventually come down on this is something that's all happened by birth. 
Mm-hmm. Can I can I step in there for a second? When we talk about this, um, because it's it's um, politically easier, we tend to sort of um, talk about gays and lesbians together. But I think there's a real question about on this particular issue whether it's um, you know primarily genetic or whether it's primarily socially constructed or cultural. Um, I think there may be a real difference between gay men and and lesbian women. I think that there may be some evidence to suggest that for men. Um, you know, the, the orientation is much harder wired, whereas for women it's much more fluid. Um, I think there's, there, there's some scientific evidence suggesting this may be the case, and um, I th- believe there's also some, some cultural evidence to suggest this as well. So um, that further complicates the question um, in a lot of ways, um, but, but it may be something that we want to take into account as well. Well, I'll agree. I don't have a, I don't have anywhere near the kind of experience with le, you know with I, I know a lot of lesbians, but I don't know I don't have the same personal experience as as they do with gay men. Okay. Well, um, you know, just just to throw in a um, a semi-related anecdote, you know, there was a high-profile publication in Political Science about four years ago showing um, evidence based on twin studies that there's even a genetic component to whether people in the U.S. identify as Democrats or Republicans. So even <laughs> even um, things that seem far removed from from the domain where we'd expect to see our biological heritage really influencing us seem to have some influence. And I guess the real question in the Milstein Chow debate is is not whether there is some biological influence, but whether there's also some cultural structuring. And one one yes. question that I would have loved to have seen addressed more in that debate is if we turn that around and ask about the cultural structuring of heterosexual marriage and heterosexuality, how would that affect the way we see these things? You know, heterosexual... Yeah, let me try to... Heterosexual marriage is culturally constructed and changes from Mm -hmm. from time and place to other time and place, and the content and structure of it you know, differs, right? This this is the um, the nostalgia trap that people talk about of, of, of inventing a story of what family once was and then assuming that that's what it needs to be. And sometimes in this debate it seems that we become essentialist on one side and um, constructivist on the other, depending on which which sort of side of the debate we're on. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, if there's, if sort of seeking consistency from either perspective might really change the way we see this. I, I think you're right, Jason, that, uh, that in fact, uh, yes, we, we do sort of flip-flop, all of us probably, depending on um, where our, our political sympathies lies, lie in this question. Um, I, I noticed that Mielstein drew heavily on Stephanie Kuntz's book um, called Marriage, a History, which has sort of, I think, been at least the most popular proponent of this idea that, you know, um, marriage has never had a really consistent form and that it has varied wildly and radically from um, across time and place. Um, I I would take some exception to that. I I think that uh, I've read the book and I think she she strains the evidence Mm. (laughs) and certainly... um, People put the evidence that she gathers to uh, to questionable uses. I think that yes, indeed, family formations have have changed and have looked quite different in different places and different times. However, you know, it, to my knowledge, uh, and and according to her book, you know, there's never been a, a place where, um, you know, 
two men together or even one man alone would have primary responsibility for caring for children. Child care and child nurture has virtually always been um, a female domain and continues to be um, in this day and age. So uh, I, I think um, that, again, the political purposes to which we wish to put the evidence um, can, can very profoundly um, affect the conclusions that we draw. All right, well, let's move from the political purposes of our evidence to the political consequences of adopting same-sex marriage. As we know, there, there are some countries in Europe and now some places in the Northern Hemisphere where um, same-sex marriage has become a, a legal thing, has become a reality. And there's, there's continuing debate, both sort of in the political world and now in the pages of dialogue, about what the consequences of that change, that legal change, are and, and can be for for heterosexual families, for children, for reproduction rates, and so on and so forth. And so I want to get this started out. What, what do, I'm going to bring Dave back in, who's been quiet for a little while here. What do you think would be the consequences if same-sex marriage became broadly legalized in the U.S.? What would be the consequences for the family? Um, I uh, live in Massachusetts, so it's obviously it's legal, been legalized here for, um, I believe, about two and a half years. Um, it's... Uh, you know, one thing that I think people fail to realize is there, um, you know, there's, I think by the highest estimates, like 8% of people are gay. And you have about, if you have the same marriage rate then among gays than you do about hetero, among heterosexuals, it means that gay marriage is basically rather uncommon. So it doesn't end up being something that you're constantly confronted with. There's no sky is falling kind of scenario. I have friends that are gay that are married, and uh, it, it's obviously different to them. It matters to them. There's legal implications and tax implications for them. But as far as the way that they interact with the world and how um, I view them or others of their friends view them, that doesn't end up changing. Um, does that no, answer your question? That's a good answer. Um, now, obviously, Muelstein for example, sees there as being potentially serious threats to, to society. In particular, Muelstein is interested in the argument that more people would engage in, in, in homosexual relationships if, if um, same-sex marriage is legitimized. Does that seem persuasive to people? Absolutely not. I mean, there's not going to be for the... I think Dave's absolutely right that in the broader society, there won't be any... There's no consequences. It doesn't. I mean, it's a it's a minor it's a small minority. What everybody in the minority are doing, it doesn't have anything any any consequences for the for the broader society. It does affect the minority uh, society, and what it more, more or less does is the people who are same sex oriented. You know, so I don't know, for example, if this um, Idaho senator. Larry Craig is same-sex oriented or not, or what 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 his particular problem is. But let's say he is. If you if you have a circumstance where uh, every, where you're not having this sort of reactionary conservative attitudes that he's grown up in and that he uh, has internalized, uh, in, and instead you just have a completely normalized uh, attitude, then he may well you know have just grown up in a very you know as in a very normal self attitude and he wouldn't be having uh, be interested in having you know public sex and in bathrooms and instead he would just be married to someone so 
So I think that would be the difference. It's not that that there is any change in the number of people. It's not, you're not going to suddenly, you know, start recruiting people to be gay uh, just because it's, it, you know, it's not uh, criminalized. Yeah, I mean, if you go to the mall and you see a gay couple, which you may see at any mall in the United States, what difference does it make whether they're married or not? Okay, now, Nielsen's argument would probably go along the lines of, let's consider the person who is same-sex oriented, but but feels, for social, cultural, or personal reasons, inclined to, to possibly feel guilty about that or possibly feel some sort of overriding motivation not to engage in a same-sex relationship. And that maybe the increased legitimation of, of having same-sex marriage available would, would bring that person into that lifestyle. I mean, that, that, that seems possible. But that doesn't have any consequence for the broader society. That's still only affecting then the, the same-sex-oriented okay. person. Well, Rosalind, yeah, Again, please come can I, Yeah. I, I, I agree with John when we're talking about gay men. I, I tend to believe that you know having gay marriage available as a, as a life option probably will have slight, if any, uh, effect on the number of men that identify as gay. Um, but again, I think when we talk about women, we're in a, in a very different ballgame here. I think that if the incentives change, then women's sexual behavior will change, and sometimes drastically. You know, 40 years ago, very similar arguments were made about illegitimate children, about children being born out of wedlock. You know, why, why would any women want to have a child out of wedlock? You know, if we, by... by um, by taking away the social stigma attached to illegitimacy, it won't have any effect on the rest of the women. That you know, it, it'll all it will do is make life better for those few. Well, in fact, we've seen in the last 30 years that it's made a huge difference. That women's sexual behavior has changed radically, and now you know a, a very large number, almost four out of ten babies are are born out of wedlock, and um, and in in certain pockets of the population, the figure is is astronomically higher than that. So again, I think that if uh, if the incentives change, if the culture changes sufficiently, um, I think y you could easily see more women, particularly um, as male marriage partners become, you know, more and more difficult to come by for a variety of reasons, particularly in disadvantaged communities. Um, I, I don't think it's at all beyond uh, the scope of imagination to imagine that, that, more, that women would indeed marry um, and would, would choose to raise children together. Um, so so I, I think, in fact, it is plausible um, that more women, at least, would would decide to marry one another and, and have children together. Beyond that, I think um, it, it, the, the probably broader effect would be that we have even more uh, fatherless children, even more children that are born to single women, because as the ideal of heterosexual parenting um, <clears throat> becomes, you know, more out of touch with the reality that we see around us, um, then even those women that continue now to hold out for marriage to have and raise children, I think that will become more and more. Um, uh, it, it will seem it will seem less and less necessary. Um, and as marriage recedes, as you know, the the institution for the bearing and raising of children. It, sometimes in in these discussions, you know, we're we're stuck with a with a sort of stinky choice between <laughs> arguing um, arguing by anecdote 
versus arguing by speculation. Um, and and it, they're both difficult. There, there's a lot of speculation involved in the kind of arguments that I've made. There's a lot of uh, anecdote involved in the, in the kind of arguments that say, oh, it doesn't change anything. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't. I, it wouldn't stop me from getting married if, if gays had the right to marry. So, so these are very difficult arguments to have, and I certainly want to be the first to, you know, acknowledge the the difficulty of of foreseeing the future. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll throw I'm, that I'll in there. I will certainly admit that I'm speculating too about that. I mean, because we would simply have to see what happens. You know, when I say that there would be no consequences for the broader society, but the way I guess we could start looking at it is, we can look at Canada where they've, you know, de- uh, they've eliminated discrimination in marriage on the basis of gender and which is what we're calling gay marriage so there's no it's commonly known as gay marriage and obviously nothing's happened in canada as a result of that and so that's why i imagine that what would happen in the broader society here is pretty well nothing and it simply affects the minority society i don't i don't think that the analogy to um to uh, out of wedlock marriage or choosing to have a choosing to have children without getting married though is the same as deciding whether or not you this idea that you were gonna that people are gonna decide to be lesbian just because uh, I, I think again that that's a it's a pretty a very radical uh, there's a big radical difference between being uh, same sex orientation and the institution of marriage which is simply a, con- a, a human construct. But I think I think John, for for many women, you know, one wouldn't need to adopt the subject position of lesbian in order to decide to marry a woman and to raise children together. You know, again, for men, this may be very different, but for many women, you know, this this could make perfect sense <laughs> and 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 could seem like the perfect ideal, except for that, then, you know, in my view. You would have many children growing up without the benefit of of a father. Um, so I, I think that for women in particular, the the question of of sexual orientation is somewhat less important uh, and could be somewhat disaggregated from the question of of whom one marries. Um, that could mean. So right now, though, by that argument, you could imagine then that okay, so you can't find a man that you're attracted to and in love with who you want to marry to raise children, but you could legally find some friend of yours who maybe he wants to raise children you want to raise children you right now could legally marry this man and raise children with him you know without it being a a a relationship where you're physical or intimate or anything like that and i don't know if that's if you know that's running off the shelf that women are just embracing that right now well it it absolutely is john pardon me I, every day you can... all these marriages right now where women are getting married to guys in non-intimate ways in order to raise children they're not getting they're not always getting married to them but they're choosing to uh, to have children fathered by somebody with whom they are not in a, in a romantic relationship right, but I'm saying that they're not actually getting ma- but they're not getting married to a guy for that purpose which is what the purpose of of getting the getting a, married to some woman that you're not intimate with right <clears throat> If if the if there was a possibility to um to obtain a bundle of legal benefits that would you know benefit you and a partner um and and enable you to have and raise children together um I believe that those incentives would indeed be enough to um to convince some and perhaps many given time this wouldn't happen overnight you have to you know conjecture into the future with social institutions and attitudes changing subtly but but um, 
but continually, yes, I believe that those incentives would be enough. I want to bring Dave in here for a minute because I know he had a point a moment ago and he didn't get a chance. So, Dave? Well, sure. I, I mean, there's, um, I think there's, there's the Alex Dobkin folk song, Every Woman Can Be a Lesbian. I think that's kind of the theme that Rosalind is drawing on. But as far as the, um, you know, if that's the case and there are consequences, um, sometimes we do make these social trade-offs that have consequences. And an example of that would be no-fault divorce. Clearly has consequences as far as the family goes. But I don't think we want to turn back the clock 40 years and say, let's eliminate no-fault divorce and make it substantially harder for people to dissolve their marriage. Um, so even if there are these kinds of consequences, every woman can be a lesbian, so then they, you know, we have a large number of women being lesbians. Is that a reason to deny the kind of um, legal protection that... Uh, that mixed-sex couples have to same-sex couples. I, I, I agree with you that there's always got to be this kind of moral calculus, and I and I definitely you know recognize that there very well could be some benefits, perhaps many that would accrue to individual gay couples, and and um, I, I believe that is something to be taken very seriously and to be weighed carefully. I certainly don't want to. Um, you know, sort of blithely, <laughs> blithely write off, you know, um, my gay brothers and sisters. It, it absolutely is something that has to be weighed, um, but people will, of course, come to different different conclusions. Another way, just to, to add to um, your question, Jay, about ways in which um, gay marriage could affect the broader society in one way that already has is through um, the sort of mainstreaming of assisted reproductive technologies. Um, I've been reading a very interesting book recently and um, in vitro fertilization and all the other sort of cognate reproductive technologies that have um, that have really taken off in the last decade or so. Many of them got their start and continue to be strongest among same-sex couples who, you know, quite understandably would like to raise children on their own. Um, this further separates um, the act of, of sex from, you know, the the um, conception and, and gestation and rearing of children. Um, and this is something that I think has a lot of ethical uh, problems, and, and it, it, I am very chagrined to see how quickly, particularly in the United States, um, we're, we're rushing into all sorts of very complicated um, very baroque uh, sort of <laughs> social arrangements uh, circulating around um, the, the the conception of children. So I believe that that's another area in which the the further mainstreaming of of um, same sex marriage and then um, same sex parenting really can and will have deep and long-lasting effects in mainstream culture because, of course, now heterosexual couples as well um, take advantage or, or heterosexual singles take advantage of these um, technologies as well. And I think that it's not now. I think it's from the entire time. I don't think that actually that in vitro fertilization and all of the family, uh, all of these uh, for people who are having their children so late and all of these techniques, I really don't think that those were developed for gay people. I don't think that the, that gay people were the major major funding behind this massive industry. And, and we're also, for some reason, why why the the legislation is to you know to try to propose um, constitutional amendments against uh, gay marriage when you could propose constitutional amendments against. Uh, single parenting or against um, 
uh, in vitro fertilization if these are the if these are the actual problems. I, I just don't think that those are re- related problems. If so problems. that's it. Well, that, that's a historical question, um, and I'm I'm going on the basis of somebody else's work. I'm I'm reading at the moment a, a book called Everything Conceivable, um, and that is indeed one of the arguments in in the chapters of that book. So I I will uh, cite that as my as my authority, and also uh, offload any blame onto 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 that um, volume if I'm if I'm wrong about that. All right. So um, having reviewed. Quite a few, I think, really the interesting arguments about what might or might not be consequences of making same-sex marriage available. I want to wrap this section up with um, a note of a historical irony that, that D. Michael Quinn has pointed out, that um, the argument that John and Dave have made um, in this discussion, that, that um, making same-sex marriage available is only really going to affect the minority community that adopts it and will have no consequences at all on everyone else, that's an argument with a good Mormon pedigree. The, the very same argument was made by the Mormon Church in the 19th century um, regarding plural marriage arrangements, that the min- minority community that adopted that would have no effects whatsoever on the families of the majority communities. Now, obviously, the LDS Church has moved a long ways away from that argument now, um, but it's, it's, it's a fascinating irony to see how these, these same rhetorical devices can be used for very different purposes. But having discussed a little bit of the consequences that could come from same-sex marriage, I want to turn to the question of who ought to decide um, whether same-sex marriage should be available or not. And Dave, you, you live in Massachusetts. I wonder if you could give us a sort of brief sketch of how it came to be that Massachusetts has um, same-sex marriage that's legally available. There was a... Um a uh, gay couple that applied. Uh, this, these are the very general facts. I'm, I've read the decision. I'm not as familiar with the actual history of the court case. But a, um, a lesbian couple applied for a marriage license. They were denied, and so they sued to get the marriage license. Um, it went to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, and the Supreme Judicial Court um, made a finding um, in well within the tradition of Massachusetts common law that set a precedent saying that gay couples should have the um, the same rights and privileges as uh, straight couples with regard to marriage. <clears throat> and it defined it in terms of a, um, ba- a basic right. So it wasn't something, there are some rights that were given by the government that would be, for example, uh, you know, the right to drive a car, some of these are, are statutory, and then others are basic, and those are supposed to exist before the government exists, like freedom of speech, um, uh, freedom from unwarranted or unreasonable search and seizure, um, and they have uh, placed then the right for couples to marry of any sex or gender uh, underneath that uh, framework. Um, when that became, uh, when that actually was, um, instituted by the legislature under order from the court, there was this huge, um, big demonstration where all the gays went down to government center in Boston or their ver- their various um, the you know county seats and they got married and it was quite a spectacle and everyone you know was thinking oh no the sky is falling and then that got done and it slowed to the kind of trickle that we um, you know would expect to see once the first. Um, wave of pent-up demand was exhausted. And since then, <clears throat> there's been, uh, the legislature has approved an amendment 
In order for the amendment to go to the people, it has to be approved during three legislative sessions. It's been approved the second time, but by a much narrower margin than the first time. It's got to have a supermajority. Chances are it will not get approved the third time. Um, and if it does, it's not obvious that the people are going to pass it. Okay, so so, so far, um, the, the, there hasn't been a sort of electoral process that's decided this. It's been judicial. That's exactly correct. All right. And as I understand it, you know, that's a big part of the debate on same-sex marriage is, is whether the courts are an appropriate venue for deciding this or whether it ought to be, I guess, a, a more directly electoral, maybe a referendum or something that's done in the legislatures. And I think that's the basic question that political science concerns itself with isn't so much what decision gets made, but who makes it, right? I mean, you're a political scientist, so you should know. <laughs> well, it's a common question. It's, it's not the only question. But it is certainly a common question, right? I mean, you know, sometimes sometimes it matters who does the deciding, even if the outcome is going to be the same. Because if the people decide something, then then they're committing themselves to a course of action. Whereas if an unelected branch of government right. makes the decision, things can look quite different. So I wonder, you know, bringing in sort of all three of the panelists as you see fit, who do you think ought to be making these decisions about whether same-sex marriage ought to be legal or not? I think that, uh, um, I mean, from the history of judicial decisions that are like this, I see on, they have two opposite extremes. One would be Brown versus Board of Education, where the court comes in and does something very disruptive, and it becomes the norm, and it dictates a moral attitude that we look back on and say, thank goodness. And then the other, on the other extreme, is the abortion decision, which, whether you agree with or disagree with, Roe versus Wade has been tremendously divisive in our society and continues to be to this day. So it's almost like a splinter that has this, you know, uh, created this, um, you know, open sore on our body politic. And a lot of the decisions that are disruptive that way fall in there. Um, I tend to think that judicial... Actually, actually, my understanding, by the way, is that Brown v. Board, the story was a little different than that that the court actually didn't act until until there was a majority of opinion in, in its favor. Mm -hmm. So, so th there's even a story there of, of some kind of deference to popular opinion, it seems. Well, I mean, it may have been a, as far as national, but it certainly wasn't in the state that they were dealing with. Right. That's a, no, that's and, absolutely right. And the right. courts tend to be, um, I mean, legislatures tend to be a lagging indicator because they do depend on elections to, and they obviously don't want to make controversial decisions because that puts them in doubt as far as their career. The courts tend to be much more leading indicators of where things are going, and when they make a when they make a decision, it tends to be more categorical than when the legislature makes a decision, and that's why it has a potential to be much more divisive. Like a, you know, a law can be incrementally modified year after year. A court decision is um, much more difficult to treat that way. Okay. John, what do you think? Do, is, would, would it be better for these decisions to be made by the voice of the people, or is it okay for this to be a, a legal decision-making framework? Well, I mean, I think that it's appropriate, whereas it's appropriate for the courts to be ruling on these issues and, and affirming uh, basic rights, like as as the as they did in Massachusetts. I actually think that it's in the, it's politically counterproductive for the courts to be doing that, and I think that. Uh, it's the same for the example that that uh, David uh, outlined, which is you know, this Roe Ro versus Wade and, and how unendingly uh, divisive that has ended up being. Where it may well have been able, we may well have been able to work through it and move towards a national consensus in that decade if we hadn't 
if we hadn't had that fracturing moment. And so I would actually on this issue, which we're seeing such rapid uh, evolution in terms of the just the general attitude in in society, that I I, I hate to have the the court short circuit, you know, the trend lines that are going all in the right direction in my opinion. So I'd rather have them not do it. I'd rather have everybody just wait and not deal with it until until later. Sort of produce cultural change first and then let that flow through the government rather than a top-down. We've already produced all the cultural change because if you just, if you just, um, you just pull generations, the people, all the people, you know, in the, in the, the majorities exist in the elderly, the, you know, the, it gets to mid, midpoints in middle-aged people and young people are, have no interest at all and it just means very small percentages of, on, on the, on the conservative side of the issue, so. So really, it's just waiting for generational turnover. Yep. Okay, Rosalind, what do you think? Um, I I am not a political scientist. I don't have uh, really strong <laughs> views on this. I I think I I tend to agree with both John and Dave that it may be better to let this be a legislative matter. I, I wonder whether, um, in some ways, the courts, the way they're structured with decisions and precedents, might be somewhat less able to counter the sort of slippery slope. Um, that we might see towards, you know, if if gay marriage is um, legalized, then indeed will we have to um, legally, by precedent, will the courts also have to legalize polygamy, polyamory, brother-sister marriages, and any other sort of non-traditional family or sexual arrangement. Um, it seems that the legislative process might be somewhat um, better equipped to, you know, stop where we want us to stop rather than um, by virtue of the precedent uh, rolling us all the way down the hill. Okay. Well, you know, to move forward into our, our final topic on this, I'm going to um, read from Mosiah 29:26. Now, it is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right, but it is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right. Therefore, this you shall observe to make and, and do your law. Do your, do your business by the voice of the people. And if the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. Yea, then is the time he will visit you with great destruction, even as he has hitherto visited this land. So that's the way of, of introducing the question of whether, if over the course of the next couple of generations, we do see these attitude changes that surveys seem to suggest we're going to see, and same-sex marriage becomes the law of the land in the United States. Will that mean um, that the United States is now um, ripe for the judgments of God? In other words, where does same-sex marriage fit with Mormon theology? Uh, I, I guess I can step right in there. I, you know, I think um, in some ways, you know, marriage is central to Mormon theology. Um, so, you know, one one might think that it that it could fit in there pretty well, and and who knows, perhaps the day will come when when it must be made to made to fit. Um, but you know, of course, the the procreative um, capacity of of the male and female, I think, is also central to Mormon theology of marriage, um, indeed of, of salvation, of, of exaltation, rather. Um, so I, I think that um, the brethren probably feel quite constrained on this point. Um, I think we've seen a lot of change in attitudes, which I welcome. You know, I, I know it doesn't go far enough for some people, but I think um, there has been a change in, in accepting that, indeed, um, most most homosexuals are not living in a state of sin simply for experiencing same-sex attraction um, and rather retreating to sort of a position that 
engaging in homosexual behavior is the sin. That's a, that um, can be a tricky distinction and that we're putting an awful lot of ideological weight on that. But um, um, I, I would imagine that the brethren probably feel that they don't have a lot of a lot of theological wiggle room here because because this procreative um, um, metaphor is so so deeply embedded in in the Mormon vision of exaltation. Um, time will tell. Okay, David, John, either one, your choice. John, please. David or John? John. <laughs> so, I, I would just say that in, in terms of your quote about. Uh, whether if the United States goes a particular direction uh, and, it, and that direction it, it, it isn't in line with uh, current Mormon theology, that I don't necessarily think that that uh, condemns the United, the United States any more than it ever has. The United States has often been, you know, the, the law hasn't always been in line with uh, LDS doctrine and LDS practice and and uh, so far, we, you know, the, we haven't necessarily experienced universal condemnation as, as a country from God. I don't know. So I think that if that was the point of the Messiah quote, I don't know that this particular issue makes it any different. Um, and, and I think that in terms of um, what's going on, what's going to happen with uh, Mormonism, that there's there's a couple directions. I mean, there's, there's precedence on the one hand with uh, ending what was a theological uh, background for... Uh, preventing blacks from holding the priesthood was changed through revelation and you could just as easily imagine that that could happen or it could this sometime in the far future I mean to say and then uh, otherwise it could also uh, it could simply not go that direction too so Dave any thoughts? Yeah um, <clears throat> I'd put your Messiah quote up against Federalist number 10 in terms of trusting majorities <laughs> And um, okay. then as far as uh, the um, theological basis, I think a lot of Mormons don't realize how fluid Mormon theology is. We tend to think it's always been the same, and, you know, that's, you know, they try to offer as proof that the church is true, that the, that the theology never changes, because Nephi says God never changes, and, and we have all those quotes along those lines when, in fact, the wonderful thing about our church is that um, the theology is rather fluid and that there is a lot of room for, for change. <clears throat> I don't think that Mormons in the 50s could have ever envisioned uh, a church like uh, that exists today that is accepting as accepting of uh, divorce and uh, out of, um, you know, as is accepting of women who are single mothers um, as we have today. And I don't see an issue with you know, as society moves along, that uh, there could be revelation that indicates that this is a time for this to occur within some sphere. So, Okay, well, Rosalind, I'd like to actually bring you back in on this. And you made a point about the reproductive metaphor as a basis for exaltation in Mormonism. It's true, isn't it, that, that for a lot of, you know, a lot of people who, who are in heterosexual marriages that metaphor is nonetheless a little bit strained. I, I say this, you know, as one half of a marriage that, that seven years in has yet to produce offspring. That there are a lot of people who um, who don't fully fit that metaphor, and yet we seem to ma make room for them. 
That's absolutely right. Um, and, and of course we should to, to impose some sort of fertility test on a heterosexual couple before we would uh, grant them um, the privilege of marrying would of course be a really egregious um, violation of, of privacy. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, of course, um, I believe that infertile males and females, um, older, older males and females who are past the age of childbearing, um, should should be allowed and encouraged to marry. Um, the question, of course, is um, you know <laughs> going going beyond that. How, how do we work with broad classes of individuals and um, as a culture um, reward those institutions that um, are are best for the most vulnerable members of our society, that is children, um, in a way that doesn't unduly invade the privacy um, or impose you know. Um, and undue burdens on on adults as well. Um, again, this is going to always involve some calculating. There's always going to be someone who who wins and someone who loses a little. Um, and I think that it behooves us to really remember um, and and be particularly um, anxious to bind up the wounds and and soothe the feelings of of our gay brothers and sisters um, if we are ones who, who perhaps would oppose gay marriage. Um, I certainly take that responsibility very seriously, um, and I do feel that burden on me as well. Okay. Um, well, a any further thoughts, David or John? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's hard. To, I can't really feel like I can respond to all the different the things that... Rosalind said, I, I, "In a way, I mean, for, we, we didn't we didn't really treat it, but I mean, I really feel like uh, there is a, there's no reason to imagine that uh, two mothers together wouldn't be an absolutely ideal uh, way to raise children, or two fathers together. So I I, I completely don't I don't agree with the idea that uh, one one man and one woman is the absolute ideal for raising children. So." Well, I've, I've certainly known men and women who didn't seem ideal for raising children, but that, that's just me being rude. Um, <laughs> Again, you know, we're, we're stuck to arguing by anecdote. Yes, of course, I'm sure there are many pairs of, of women and many pairs of men who would make wonderful co-parents. Um, again, we, we, we're not talking about individual couples, though. We're talking about a huge social institution and talking about over large numbers of people, uh, in, in, and particularly those in, in who, who are the least advantaged, those who are in, you know, in our lowest socioeconomic strata. We're talking about what is going to be best for those most vulnerable children. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And, of course, I think that, that you know, that we, we, they will be best served by um, encouraging those social institutions that will most likely end up with them being raised with the benefit of a mother and a father both. It's worth pointing out that that's, that, that, that's certainly the, the kind of message that we've heard from the LDS Church, that that, that kind of an environment is essential for children and that, that keeping same-sex marriage from being legal somehow is, is in fact going to be a central part of promoting that environment, right? So that that is... But in fact, what's happened, unfortunately, with this, with this um, not, you know, a non-open environment, the, the environment we've had in the past, what ends up happening is that people who are same-sex oriented marry in, in heterosexual marriages in order to 
uh, in order to try to fit in for all of these whatever reasons. And then, then you know, at a certain point, they realize that you know they've made this this terrible thing where where they're in this relationship that that doesn't have the same basis that you know if they would if they're heterosexually oriented, and then that then they end up getting divorce. It breaks the family. The pe- everybody leaves the church. I mean, the, the, I, so I don't I don't agree that that's that that's a anyway that that works. Um, I, I, I absolutely, yeah, I, I agree with you, John. I I I, I truly regret, um, <laughs> or, or or certainly think it's it's a very poor idea to pressure um, gay men or gay women into a heterosexual marriage. I think that we need to do a lot more to make another subject position for them, make another life story um, for them, so that they don't feel pressured um, into a, a marriage that is is not right for them. Um, and I, I think that we we can and ought to be. Um, doing a lot more there, and um, of course we, we we differ on whether or not it would be in every in society's best interest to make that alternative life story um, a gay marriage. Um, but I, I I agree with you that a, a marriage between a, a heterosexual and a homosexual partner is is almost always a, a very difficult proposition and, and ends very badly for many of them. So we're we're running low on time, but I want to give Dave one last opportunity to jump in if you have any further thing to add here. Yeah, I am um, just uh, surprised by how much I end up uh, agreeing with John Hamer on this because um, I actually do have some misgivings that this conversation hasn't ended up bringing them out. But um, uh, well, give, us the, certain- give us the one minute, 30 second version of the misgivings. I do tend to be more comfortable with, the, with a, a legally recognized union for same-sex couples that's actually, you know, just uh, called a union that um, doesn't have the name marriage. That uh, may just be... Um, some lingering form of prejudice about this that I uh, retain. Um, and uh, I um, do um, feel like um, the pressure that churches feel to adopt that um, is not a good thing, that the churches should be, um, you know, shouldn't be judged as discriminatory or not discriminatory based on whether or not they support marital equality. And that's pretty much it in a nutshell. All right. Well, um, I want to thank all three of you for this very um, civil and I think really interesting conversation about same-sex marriage. Um, Just as a kind of meta point about this conversation, I I think we've done a great job over the last hour of proving that, in fact, Mormons can talk about same-sex marriage without yelling, screaming, or resorting to capital letters. And this is is something that I hope um, will will spread through our community in the future. to wrap things up, uh, it's time for our famed end-of-show rants. So do, do the three of you have something that you'd like to talk about really quickly as we, we cut to the end of the show? I do. I can go first. Okay, Dave. I've been telling um, everybody that I've run into that knows anything about Mormon studies um, that uh, I went to the John Whitmer Historical Association Conference. With John Hamer, by the way, who was one of the key people running. He's the executive director there. Um or uh, him and um, Mike Karpowitz are the co-executive directors. And uh, it was just terrific. It was uh, very well put together, and um, just I really enjoyed it. I um, have uh, written about it on my uh, blog, but it's it's accessible for people that don't know a lot about history and are just interested in, in getting a start but have enthusiasm uh, all the way up to professional academics. Okay, very nice. So a plug for the John Whitmer Historical Association meetings. John, do you, have you got something for us? Um, 
well, I guess we get, I think it was, I think it less because of the conference, everything is, has been, has been going by really quickly or slowly. I don't know. I'm, I've lost track of time, but I think it was last week that Warren Jeffs was found, uh, guilty in his crime for, or in, in the courts for, uh, uh, having, uh, performing an underage, underage marriage. And he's, of course, the president of the FLDS church. And so, um, I guess the, uh, whereas on, on the one hand, I think that it, it, the case itself seems like it was a little bit problematic that, that they went after him particularly as opposed to, uh, the other people who might have been more closely involved in, in performing the marriage. The, um, the, the, the thing that I think is positive that comes out of this and hopefully will come out of it for, all of the fundamentalist community is just to stop having these underage marriages. At, at, at a certain point, uh, I think that we have to decide as a society that it won't make sense to criminalize um, polygamous marriages between consenting adults. But if we can start to uh, it, clamp down on on practices that are just not uh, that aren't possible or that are that are like. Uh, where non-consenting adults are involved, where children are pressured into these marriages, if we can eliminate those sorts of aspects of it, uh, I think that would be a very good thing, a good result. Okay, thank you, John. Rosalind, have you got a, a brief comment on something or other? Um, I, I, I don't, no. <laughs> okay, well, that's fine. Um, we, we'll, we'll, take, we, we'll give you a rain check on that. All right. Um, I want to just briefly plug a, a collection of short stories that I read a couple of weeks ago. That um, It's Long After Dark by Todd Robert Peterson. This is a collection of all Mormon-themed short stories. And for those of you who are starting to cringe because I said Mormon-themed fiction, uncringe. This is, this is the real stuff. Check this book out. It's really wonderful and really worth reading. It's one of the first collections of, of Mormon fiction I've read that Every single story is beautiful and touching. It captures the Mormon experience from a variety of perspectives, not just U.S., you know, white Anglo-American perspectives, but a, a whole bunch of different points of view. And um, Todd Robert Peterson's a guy to watch. All right. So there you are. Uh, Dave, John, Rosalind, thank you for joining me, and um, thank you, listeners, for tuning in for this episode of Thanks, Mormon Jay. Matters. Okay. Done. This earth was once a garden place with all her glories coming. And men did live a holy race and worship Jesus face to face in Adam on Diamond. We read that Enoch walked with God above the power of mammon. While Zion spread herself abroad And saints and angels sang aloud In Adam on thy Her land was good and greatly blessed Beyond all Israel's Canaan Her fame was known from east to west Her peace was great and pure the rest of Adam on Diamond
Hosanna to such days to come, the Savior's second coming. When all the earth in glorious bloom affords the saints a holy home, like Adam. 